Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring more by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back this week with part one of Disney Pixar's Inside Out in our Limit Break series. Up to this point, we've come up with a prototype limit break recipe that we're using to try to understand how do we break limits in the real world around us and inside of ourselves. That limit break recipe has four steps. First step is dissatisfaction and attachment to a mission. Step two is the realization of a suitable path forward and alignment to that path through actions. Step three is the paying of a cost and the breakthrough moment. And step four is the flow is released. So as we go into the world of Inside Out, we're gonna go through Riley's story. It's really a classic coming of age story where we have a child who goes from their old world or their small world environment, for her it's Minnesota, where she grew up and knows everybody and everything about the world in her eyes, to this new world of San Francisco, where everything is different and Riley's not as good as everybody else at all the things that she encounters, or at least it doesn't seem that way. So Riley, in her coming of age story, comes up against her first limit break that she has to go through. Initially, Riley tries to initiate a limit break when she's very dissatisfied with the new state that she's in by running away. What she realizes when she tries to run away back to Minnesota to go back to her good memories is that she can't go back to the old Riley, that that just isn't going to work. So what happens is Riley has to find a new way forward, and this is the real limit break that we're going to talk about in today's episode, where Riley is dissatisfied with this lack of joy in her life that she attributes to her move to San Francisco. She has a realization that she can't be joyful all of the time and that she needs to allow her emotions to process and be balanced. And she has the limit break when she lets sadness take over the controls and allows her core memories to become more complex fusions of her emotions. Welcome to Wonder Tour. This is Brian. I'm here with Drew. I'm excited to talk about this one. I know this is one of Drew's favorite movies, and he's seen it any number of times. My first encounter with it was last night, so it's pretty fresh for me. And I really enjoyed it. It's kind of fun. Our specialty here is taking fantastic and spectacular movies and teasing the metaphors out of them. It's a little different experience this time around when everything that's on the screen is literally a visual metaphor. So they've done a lot of the work for us. It's done a really good job of taking concepts and expressing them in the way that a five-year-old could understand. Like the emotions are explicit characters. But the story that happens in the, in the big world of Riley on the screen is really well delineated through the interplay between the emotions who somehow also managed to be sort of compelling characters themselves. I really appreciated that part of it. I think we get like the truest coming of age story here, where in Princess Mononoke, we got a sort of coming of age story that may not resonate as well with the Western audience because it's more veiled. This is like the more classic kid growing up, kid encounters problem for the first time that has complexity that their models can't handle and has to deal with that. So I just love how you get the nuts and bolts of it all stripped out into these models that we see inside of Riley's head, whether it's the islands or the abstract thought land or the imagination land or the dream theater that they've got going on there. 
it's not to say that all of these are like perfect analogies for how this works. But before this, I didn't have a lot of these, even these like cartoony models in my own head for, you know, how does abstract thought work inside of Drew? <laughs> and I definitely have that one nugget from a, a TV commercial jingle that I heard in 1978 that still pops up at random times. <laughs> I know that was that one was so good. Yes. People good make gum. <laughs> yep. The other thing that I really liked about this movie, though, is that if we're talking in our series on limit breaks, I think we have seen and we're going to see a lot of examples of limits or challenges that the character willingly undertakes. Maybe they don't know about them at the beginning of the movie, but destroying the Death Star or throwing the ring into the fires of Mount Doom or winning the world championship or the Olympic gold medal are our goals the character sort of aspires to or the character embraces. But one of the really common limit break stories in the real world, one of the really common challenges that we have is the externally imposed change. And so what we see in this movie is that Riley's this 11-year-old girl who's got this happy, idyllic, sheltered, only child life in Minnesota. And she is forcibly moved with her family for her dad's new job to this new environment in San Francisco, which is a very different environment, literally a new state. So and she has to grapple with how to thrive in this new state. And I think that's a common it's not only, you know, a good framing device and a, a metaphor, but it's also a common experience for us in the workplace as individuals and as leaders is that the set of rules, the set of parameters, the environment that governed our success in the past are constantly changing. And things that we took for granted are being taken away from us and habits that we had that allowed us to thrive don't let us thrive anymore. Sometimes those are things you sign up for, and sometimes those are things just, just happen to you. You may get assigned to a role that you didn't necessarily aspire to, or your industry may change in a way that some core things about the way the customers are behaving or the way the regulations are set is that you can't just follow the same, the same patterns. Your company can't thrive by doing the same things it always did, or you personally can't. And so I think this will be really fun to explore Riley as an example of going through a, an involuntary change of state and figuring out how to thrive in that new environment. Let's get started with our episode here. We're gonna focus in this first episode, I think, on the internal experience of that change. And then as we digest that a little bit and line up these emotional experiences with our limit break model and hopefully mature our limit break model in the process, then in episode two, we're gonna circle back from the leadership viewpoint and think about how do you use these tools with your own team, with your own workplace, with your own environment. Well, let's start off in our own heads because really that's where this entire movie takes place. So what uh, what strikes you about this, Drew? What did you love about this movie and, and how does that line up with our recent conversations? Yeah, I liked how initially it wasn't necessarily clear how the limit break was going to work and how this one's a little bit messier. But I think that's aptly done for how it actually works in reality. In movies, sometimes the limit break can be too clean and it's like, OK, but when it's in the real world, when I'm going through this experience myself, what is this actually going to look like? And you get a little bit less of a clean delineation between step one, step two, step three, step four in our limit break model here, which is perfect that we got this here. So as we were processing this, coming to understand like, oh, yeah, Riley fails the first limit break, her first limit break. She goes to step three to pay the cost, even though she stole the money from her mom to pay the, you know, the bus fare. And the cost is really like a breaking a bridge to her parents. When she goes through that moment, she goes to initiate the limit break and it's like the car doesn't start. It's not going to achieve the results that she thought it was going to achieve. And so she has to go back to step one and step two, really, 
and reevaluate the mission, reevaluate, okay, was it the right realization? Does my realization lead to alignment? And then she can go back and pay the cost. And the cost was the opposite of what she thought the cost was. I'll just sum it up by saying that's what I love, is that the cost was the opposite. She thought the cost she had to pay was distancing herself from her parents and lying to them and running away. What she came to realize was the real cost she had to pay was coming clean with her parents and just coming clean with herself about her emotions so that she could move forward. Oh, that's awesome. And I think that's a really common reaction, right? When you're dissatisfied with the world around you, you may blame it on the people around you rather than the fact that the whole world has changed. Your emotions may just cause you to draw away from those that are actually supporting you. Let's talk about that dissatisfaction because I wanted to crystallize that a little bit. We talked over the week since the Andor episode about what does dissatisfaction mean? And I wanted to suggest a definition is a dissatisfaction is recognizing a gap between the state of the external world and my desired internal state or my comfort zone or, you know, the, <laughs> the place that I've been successful. And so in this case, it's I love that it's literally a state. They moved from Minnesota to California. <laughs> but but that gap is what causes the dissatisfaction. And that's externally imposed. She doesn't like the new city. She doesn't like the new house. She doesn't like the new hockey team. She doesn't like the fact that her dad is really busy all the time. Like there's a bunch of things that had changed. She's had a very sheltered existence. She's had a sort of a joy dominated childhood, which is what we all aspire to as parents. But as a result, she's kind of, you know, having these other emotions be dominant is new for her. She's having this experience of the fear and the anger and the disgust, these transient emotions are taking over and kind of running the show on a more regular basis. And the sadness is popping up. This, I love the sadness character. She's she's fabulous and very personally recognizable. <laughs> she's like popping up for no apparent reason. And suddenly she's more powerful than she's ever been before. And nobody understands why. Like, I think I love that as a metaphor, like that you can recognize the dissatisfaction. You can recognize the need to change when suddenly sadness has gained powers that it didn't, that she didn't have before. Yeah. So let's talk about that dissatisfaction and maybe start to break down a little bit of what can cause dissatisfaction because we see the external markers of dissatisfaction here where the new city looked drab to her. There's broccoli on the pizza in her dreams, right? So she's not happy about just the small change points from her previous life. The apartment is not as good as the house. The hockey team is not to her liking or she's not able to fit in. Her dad's work is too much and, and he's not able to spend as much time with her. And so the internal representation of that dissatisfaction is portrayed really well by Joy because Joy is trying to keep everybody in line, trying to lead the team and get everybody to play their part or what she thinks is their part. But every time Joy tries to pull something off, it keeps getting foiled. So she's trying to just kind of maintain the status quo when the status quo clearly is not going to get it done. And so it's causing some pain for Riley. And the first time that we see that pain, Brian, is when she breaks down in the classroom. Yes. And so this is this is really great where she's doing this, keeping the stiff upper lip thing. Her mom has a sweet little sympathetic talk with her that probably isn't the right message that says, oh, you know, we know that this is really hard and we're really proud. It's really stressful for dad. So we're really proud of you that you're just being our happy girl. that You're just powering through and just acting like everything is fine. That's actually not the case. Everything is not fine. Things have changed and she has dissatisfaction. And so, yeah, so we have this moment where she goes into the classroom and gets asked to introduce herself, which is sort of a stressful thing anyway, and she starts talking and she ends up 
like I said, the sadness is much more powerful than we thought. And she ends up just sort of vomiting out like, oh, and we moved and all my left all my friends behind. And she's just like weeping in the middle of the classroom, which is not a great way to introduce yourself to 12 year olds. <laughs> so um, she's sad and then embarrassed about being sad. And all of the emotions are sort of fighting for attention at once. But that's the moment where she at least realizes that she's dissatisfied. She's like, oh, I am not fine. This is not okay. I do not like this new state of the world. And I love that because it ties into, we talked a lot about the mission that has to be the recognition of an external goal. If you have dissatisfaction as an internal state, then step one is not just being dissatisfied, but recognizing that something could be better and you want to aspire to it. But in this kind of a story where the world has changed around you, oftentimes the mission is just something fairly nebulous, like I want to be as successful or as joyful in this new world as I was in the old world. In a classic hero's journey, is in, in this big world as I was in my small world. The mission isn't, you know, I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to throw the ring into Mount Doom and we're done, right? Or I'm going to pull off the heist and we'll have $8 million and then we'll be fine, right? Like it's not that tangible, but that's because the change, you know, the, it's not an aspirational goal. It's a, I just want to get back to, I feel like my head's above water, emotional state where I'm balanced. In this whole story, that's kind of her only mission. Like you said, her first realization is maybe I can do something about it but she does not figure out how to align her actions with her actual new state. So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's good to look at our mountaintop moment here in the classroom and what's going on inside Riley with the emotions all going crazy all at once, trying to solve the situation. They can't get the core memories to work and sadness is messing everything up, it appears like. And you can contrast that with the climax of the movie when they make it back to headquarters and spoilers, this will be in, in part two here, but they make it back and they give sadness the keys to the control center. What happens the first time is like haywire, nobody knows what's going on and the dissatisfaction is palpable, but there is no solution in place. There's nothing going on there. And then the, the actual pang of the cost part of the limit break is at the end of the movie when Sadness is able to take over the controls there. So contrasting how the characters are working together in our moment here versus in the climax of the movie shows us the realization that is going to happen here and the cost that has to be paid and how Riley is going to develop as a person. So for me, looking at this, I see that there's going to be moments for us where you're crying in front of the classroom, even as adults. There's unexpected moments where you realize like, oh, crap, I'm crying in front of the classroom. It might be different emotions, right? It might be that fear and anger are driving you or something and you accidentally yell at one of your kids or you accidentally freak out at work or something like that. And you're like, that is not who I thought that I was. I just want to say it's not just a coming of age thing where this happens to us. Our emotions are hard to control things inside of us that are a part of us. And I want to try to break that apart now, Brian. So as we look at this step one, dissatisfaction, where we're going to spend most of our time in part one here, what is the emotional tie to dissatisfaction? Because I know that neither of us is a psychologist, but our emotions seem to drive our dissatisfaction. And it's not that our emotions evolve out of thin air, but our emotions fuel our dissatisfaction maybe is a better way to say it. Because if you just have like a logical dissatisfaction with something, I mean, I don't think I personally would do much about it. That's a good question. I would almost propose that it's the other way around, that the the energy of the dissatisfaction, the gap between where you want to be and where you are, that tension is what fuels the emotions, especially the, the, the reactionary or negative ones. 
So in this case, like what they've shown us explicitly on the screen, right, is that Riley's got a lot of her self-image in these four memory islands. This is who I am, and this is what I remember about my life that tells me how to behave, and I can deploy the goofy behavior one, or the hockey playing one, or the friendship one. Those are core to how she views herself. But in this new environment, those things don't work the way that she thought they were going to. And so what happens is that her emotions sort of are reactive to that tension. They're spinning up and they're bouncing over the place. They're in control more strongly, especially the more negative emotions are in control more strongly because she's got this tension and she hasn't figured out the flow state yet. Her internal state, represented by these core memory islands and represented by her, her habits and patterns of thought, isn't aligned with the new world. It doesn't work. The hockey playing one inexplicably fails, even though she's good at it, just because her emotions are all kind of jerked up and she's not performing at her peak. And the friendship one doesn't work because she doesn't have friends that have that built up background. And the goofy thing doesn't work because it's just it doesn't really match. It's not the right thing to do when you're confused and sad. So I, I think that the you're right. There's this intrinsic relationship between how big the gap is, how dissatisfied you are and how much power the emotions have. Yeah, that I, I like how you explain that here, and that might already be one of my main takeaways from this. It's just trying to understand how the emotions play a role, because that's going to be critical as we look at how to help other people to have limit breaks. So what you're saying is that the dissatisfaction is probably going to be driven by pain and suffering. It almost always is. It could be your pain and suffering. It could be somebody else's pain and suffering. But that's how humans work. <laughs> We're generally not going to be dissatisfied by the color red versus the color blue enough to do something about it to be something that's actually causing us some sort of a negative impact and the negative impact mechanism for humans is pain. So with that, that creates the emotional response and the emotional response. And this is going to be helpful for us as we look at the failed limit break and the successful limit break for Riley, because the failed limit break, the emotional response drives her to a mission that is trying to get back to the old world. Her mission is like, okay, we need to get back to the old Riley and that will fix us. And that's not the approach that's actually going to work because she's just kind of letting the emotions each have control of the control board one at a time. And it's it's causing her to come up with, you know, like anger's controlling it. And he's like, we got to go back. We got to go back. Like I said, I think the high level mission of I want to be successful again, right? Like I, I want to get to a state where I'm successful. That doesn't really change. But the individual action of like, oh, I'm going to try to rewind the clock. I'm just going to go back, right? So you talked about pain and suffering as a driver. I agree with that. But the suffering we can have in our heads over even small things, like I, I don't know if you know, you've been a video gamer in the past too, right? Have you ever thrown a controller across the room in frustration at a video game? Right? Like there's no actual pain there, right? <laughs> I, can't oh, yeah, beat this, yeah. I can't beat this level is not an existential threat. But it can still drive very real frustration, right? You know, you've set yourself a goal, you've set yourself a mission, and you can't get there, and you have to figure out how to align with it, right? You can get really, really angry. But that's a relatively, that's a transient thing. It's a small-scale frustration. Like, not being able to be the level and you know, is, is a pretty small thing. So just think about, like, if you can have that level of anger arise in a video game, how much more energy is there to fuel your emotions? How much more energy is there to fuel dissatisfaction? in a real life state change when your job is at threat or when somebody is ill or when you are unable to achieve something in the world that you really want to achieve. Especially when you have, it feels like no control over the situation like Riley right. does here that right. can result in even more flaring emotions because you don't have an outlet for those emotions. And so that's kind of what Riley does like any normal human. 
even when you know you lose a person in your life it's like you can't get that person back somebody yeah, dies so you literally can't get that person back there is nothing you're going to be able to do you have to move forward but you can initially have a failed limit break pretty easily where you just go and do unhealthy things because you're like okay well my mission is to get back to being healthy but i'm just coping at this point the best i could right. do is cope the realization can happen in stages right you can realize that oh, wow, I'm really upset about this. Like, this is a terrible thing in my life that's happened. I've had to move to San Francisco and I hate it. Or I've lost, you know, on the, on the heavy level, right? Yeah, I've lost somebody that I love. That's the internal state. But the realization that is coupled with an external alignment, that is coupled with this is what I can do with the external world that actually exists, that can take a couple of tries, right? And so Riley's first effort at alignment is, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to align my world by physically moving myself back to Minnesota. Like, I'm going to steal a credit card and buy a bus ticket and get on a bus and leave San Francisco. She's trying for alignment, right? She's trying to align her external world, but, it's, but it doesn't recognize the fact that she's 11 years old. So I think that the realization that you finally need to make to move forward to be ready to pay the cost is a realization that fully aligns with the external world, right? And in Riley's case, she is 11 years old and still very much needs her parents. And she still has family that very much loves her and will take care of her. And there are things in San Francisco that she could be successful with. And so she needs to go embrace that. And she needs, in order to do that, she needs to just acknowledge the fact that she's really sad. Right? And she that needs she to... can't recapture her previous state of being. That is part of the coming of age story every single time is right. the realization that you cannot hang on to a previous state of being. I would argue that that's her main realization that she has here is that, like you said, she can't be joyful all the time. She can't be that only joyful core memories, Riley. She can't right. keep those core memories forever as she grows up and she needs to allow for a fusion of emotions. And then once she has that realization that she needs to allow for a fusion of emotions then she is able to turn around and pay the cost. Absolutely. And part of the paying the cost is, I love this visual metaphor that we don't even realize is part of paying the cost as we go through the story until, until you get towards the end, right? Part of paying the cost is letting those core elements crumble and fall into the gap, right? <laughs> fall into the abyss and be gone. That this thing that I counted on as a core part of my existence that exact thing maybe isn't going to be there to depend on anymore. And I have to let it just turn gray and go dark and fall into the pit. And then I'll rebuild a new one in its place that maybe has some of the same elements, but isn't exactly the same. The landscape has to change and the letting go is a big part of paying the cost. Yes, it absolutely is. And the emotional journey that you're going on through that realization, I mean, I'm sure we could tie the realization onto somewhere in the stages of grief that you go through, right? Because that's what allows you to break out of that cycle of grief eventually, or to get to the end of the cycle, essentially. Being able to get your emotions into alignment, I love it again, internally, which is exactly what we see with Riley. She's able to get her emotions into alignment working together instead of working against each other, where she's just trying to be happy for a while. And then all of a sudden, sadness takes over controls, which because is what you see when you see somebody unhealthily dealing with change in their life, that they're good, they're good, they're good. And then suddenly everything is all falling apart, it feels like. Right. Well, and that's great, right? We're a leadership focused podcast here, but I think grief is a uh one of the most powerful kind of inevitable human experiences. And that's a great example of an externally imposed change, right? If you lose somebody that's important to you, 
that hole is just there. And it can, you know, it can be a, it can be a family member or it can be a friend, it can be a pet, but that gap in the world is there. You know, you get all the emotions oscillating around the edges of the gap, sort of just being fed by the energy of the tension of the fact that that person isn't there anymore. I love that. And I always want to use that, right? That's one of the things that makes humans special is the ability to leverage the finality. Within this world, there is finality to humans. And while I don't want to just say that that only means like death of your body and, you know, I also want to use the finality to mean other things. But right here, the easiest example is just to use death of your person. When you're looking to help somebody change, a lot of the time what I'm thinking about is how can I help that person to develop good character traits so that when something comes, when inevitably, like you said, Brian, the the human experience we all go through of losing someone happens, they will be ready to capitalize on it. They will have the right realization because, you know, God knows there's going to be dissatisfaction when that happens. It's just a matter of are they going to have the right realization and go on the right mission? Or are they going to have a failed limit break? Leveraging that, I just want to bring in a quote that I heard from my dad the other day that might be familiar to some of you all, and I'm going to butcher this, but people won't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. Or we could say that it's greater than the energy input to change. Right. You're not going to get to a point where humans can change until there is a, as you said, Brian, a huge gap in terms of dissatisfaction when it's a huge task, like a transformation that has to happen. Obviously, like the everyday dissatisfaction of, oh, I want sugar in my coffee. I'm going to have to walk to the bar to get sugar. That's not a limit break. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's because it's in your head the pain or the difficulty of adopting the new state. We've all seen people, we've all been that person who waited too long to change, who just held on to an unhealthy thing because it was familiar, right? And so because it's in your head, that experience can be, it's unknown, it's scary, I'm not willing to make that change, even if it's not that hard. The amount of energy that's required is related to how unfamiliar it is. And you can you can see that by all these emotions, right? You can see the the fear emotion like, I'm not sure what's on the other side, or the disgust emotion of like, I reject this new way of doing things. You can have really trivial examples. If you've ever, you know, either bought multiple generations of a product or worked in software development or product development, customers or users can get really upset about very minor changes in a thing that they love, right? You know, I organized my entire life around my, you know, my Palm Pilot PDA, and then that went away, and now I have to learn how to use a stupid iPhone. It's probably better, but I just liked my thing, right? I just liked the way that this screen was laid out. Whatever stupid thing, right? That sense that there is energy in the dissatisfaction, but you also have to have the mission. You have to have recognized that you want to be in the better state is what allows the limit break. Tying it back to our recipe here, right? I really like that quote is that the effort to change has to overcome the effort of staying the same. But you you don't even know what that effort is. You're not willing to spend it unless you can see something on the other side. It might just be, I just want to get back to being as joyful as often as I was before. I want to be as successful as I was before. But first, you have to grapple with the reality that you can't go backwards. That's not one of our options. There are so many things that change out from under us. And the company you work for now might have gotten bought out by a bigger company. And you've got new rules and you've got new environment that you have to deal with. Or the boss that you loved got promoted or went for another job. And either you're the boss now and you have to try to do things at that level. Or you're working for somebody that has a completely different set of priorities. Those are all very real experiences. And even if you're not 11, 
you will have all of these very real emotions sort of vying for control and out of balance until you can get that realization and alignment, until you're willing to pay the cost to really settle into the new world. So as we try to wrap this up, Brian, we've talked a lot conceptually as we tend to do here, but how do we try to make this applicable for ourselves so that when we are feeling that dissatisfaction, when that dissatisfaction is displayed in our emotions, we kind of recognize now that we're going to need a limit break of sorts. So then how do we progress that forward? Are we looking for the realization? Because that's the tough thing about realizations is that it seems like when you go out looking for realizations, there's none to be found. <laughs> right. Well, I love the way this formula kind of uh, the recipe kind of emerged as we were talking about it is that the realization happens after the dissatisfaction. You can be dissatisfied. You can have a state change in the world that happened quickly or gradually, and you can be very frustrated without necessarily realizing exactly what's going on. The takeaway for me is to pay attention to the strength of the emotions. If you're having wild swings between joy and sadness, if you're noticing that your fear or your anger are dominating, that's a pretty good clue that there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of tension in dissatisfaction somewhere, and you should probably look for it. What's the thing that you're assuming inside that is no longer true in the world outside? And if it's a, a loss in the family, it'll be pretty clear. Like, you won't be surprised about that. But it could be another change that you just haven't really recognized is so different. Somebody else is behaving differently or something about your job or your skills. Or maybe your brain's just ready for the next level and you're suddenly realizing, like playing a musical instrument, you have this experience all the time. You know, you're doing your thing and you're doing your thing and you're practicing and you're playing. And suddenly you're like, oh, God, I'm terrible. Like, I stink. Why can't I do this thing that I hear in my head now? Like your brain will get out ahead and you'll have this dissatisfaction and you have to be willing to work on closing that gap. So for me, the takeaway is recognizing that the strength of the emotions is a clue to dissatisfaction and use that as an opportunity to really look around for what's the change that I haven't grappled with? What's the thing that I'm refusing to acknowledge in my world that I need to incorporate into my new behaviors? Wow, that's awesome. I love how you pull that together there. And then to add on to that, for me, I would just say looking for that clue to your dissatisfaction from an emotional perspective, just to recognize that even an emotionally mature person is going to be more mature in their ability to exhibit certain emotions versus others, right? Some of us still might be using fear as a crutch or anger as a crutch or something like that, as opposed to as we kind of see at the end in this ideal state where the core memories, which we have to assume the core memories, at least some of them have to do with limit breaks that happen in your life. That's what makes them so important to you because that limit break was a transformation in you as a person. We've defined that a limit break has to transform you as a person. Your biggest limit breaks would become a founding part of who you are. So if that's the case, then ideally, I think we'd have joy infused in almost all of our memories to some extent, at least at the end of them. But kind of recognizing, you know, what emotion is missing in, in this situation, not to say that every limit break requires every emotion in exact balance, but to just think, hey, if I can't get a limit break here, am I really experiencing joy in my work anymore? Am I really experiencing disgust at the current state of things? Because if I'm not, then it's possible those emotions are not balancing properly. And I know that's not a formula that's just going to magically help us move forward. But like you said, Brian, paying attention to those differentiation in, in how your emotions are being displayed can really help to understand why we are or are not able to reach step two or three in our limit break. Yeah. And so talking about the backside of it, then the paying the cost piece. 
the other big takeaway for me is that once you've realized that in this kind of, you know, external change style limit break, what this movie is showing us, right, is that the emotions, they need to work together. They balance each other. They are two sides of the same coin, especially joy and sadness. I lost a really good friend when I was like 25 or 26, who was a musician and a technical colleague. And part of my sadness is that I really enjoyed playing music with him. I really enjoyed talking to him, right? And so I've lost that piece of my life that I had really valued. So those emotions are inextricably intertwined. Like when I remember this person, you know, I remember I remember the joy and I remember, you know, then I'm sad about it. But also the paying the cost is the letting go, right? If every time I play with another bass player for the rest of my life, I'm like, well, you're not as good as Bruce. That's not letting me acknowledge it and move on to, you know, break past that limit into living in the, my new reality. And so I think that piece of paying the cost is often letting go of your attachment to some piece of the past, whether it's your own behaviors or something that you counted on in the world to be true that is no longer true. That's often one of the costs you have to pay. And that's the thing that we see explicitly on screen in this movie. Riley's paying the cost is experiencing her emotions fully, letting sadness just be in charge for a while. The sadness crystallizes for her what she misses and what's different in her new world that she just can't get back. But then doing that and letting that turn into memories allows her to then like, okay, now I can let go of those and I can start figuring out how to make new memories in the new world with the new actual state that I'm in. San Francisco can start to flow. Oh, wow. That was fun. That was a bit of an emotional roller coaster, not to be too corny about it. I think we got to some real, real good points there. I'm excited about these key takeaways from an internal standpoint, what it's like to experience change and what it's like to grapple with loss and letting go as part of change and what it's like to validate your emotions as good indicators of an experience that you've had. And so I think what we want to do in part two and come back for next week's episode is we'll talk about if you're the magnanimous leader and you have this wisdom, you have this recognition of the limit break process, and you have this recognition of the internal emotional states that come along with it. How do you leverage that with your team? How do you leverage that in a professional environment? How do you leverage that to help those around you through their own challenges? Just want to say thanks to everyone for joining us once again, as always. We really appreciate the audience for these conversations, and I get a lot out of them every time. So thanks again to Drew. Everyone have a great week. We'll hope to talk to you again next week. And in the meantime, just remember, as always, character is destiny. Destiny.